0: Screen Time with John Fardy. This is News Talk.
1: Hello and welcome to Screen Time. I'm John Fardy and this is News Talk's TV and movie show. This week on the show, Thinking Film. I talk to the great Richard Carney about his new book, All About the Philosophy of Cinema and What Movies Can Teach Us About Being Alive. Off the ball's own, Jer Gilroy chats about his favourite movie. And as always, we'll be bringing you all the TV and movies you should watch or possibly avoid. I'm open on Twitter, John Farty, or you can email me screentime at newstalk.com. This show is available as a podcast every Friday at 5pm on newstalk.com with the Newstalk app powered by Goloud. And it's on the radio every Saturday at 6pm here on Newstalk. Good weekend to you all. Hope you're doing well. Despite the unseasonably bad... July weather. And uh, this is a movie and TV show, of course, but I can't start the show without mentioning the sad passing of the wonderful Sinead O'Connor. And I mean, she was, you know, had a lot to do with movies and TV, some of those iconic. TV appearances from Saturday Night Live to The Late Late Show, her use of songs and movies, most notably You Made Me the Thief of Your Heart, a beautiful song from In the Name of the Father and of course the music videos and Chief Among Them, Nothing Compares to You I remember watching that as a young teenager and going, what is this? Is she Irish? This this is incredible, this close up of this face on this gorgeous song it's one of the best videos ever made and I know people are still almost trying to get their heads around it. I was, it sounds very dramatic, but I was driving to the shops on Wednesday evening and I had to pull over the car when I heard it on the radio and I I, I started texting people and a lot of people had that sensation that we had to, you had to almost share the news with somebody, you know, like, Patrick Kavanagh says we're not a a, to know we're not alone in our loneliness Uh, and of course that loneliness is just a drop in the ocean to uh, what Sinead's family and all are feeling now and it's almost a cliche over the last few days to even say this but she simply had one of the greatest most beautiful plaintive endearing voices not not just from Ireland but from anywhere of the last 50, 100 years ever. So uh, sad, sad news. There is a great documentary that was only out last year called Nothing Compares, all about her life and her journey. And, and it's a brilliant documentary about, you know, how she kind of set out to be a punk of sorts and ended up being a rock star. And of course, the things that troubled her and of course the issues she took a stand on, many of which the fullness of time would show that she was very much on the right side of what she was talking about and was on the side of the angels. So nothing compares a great documentary. If you want to remember the legendary Sinead O'Connor this weekend or of course you could just listen to some of the incredible music. Now in happier news it was a bumper weekend for the cinema and you've probably heard due to Oppenheimer and Barbie the box office is breaking all sorts of records. It's kind of ironic in a in a week when uh, actors are on strike but there you go and even here in Ireland I saw a note from the lighthouse uh, and also the Palais in Galway they had their biggest weekend ever uh, with cinemas booked out and people just going mad to see Oppenheimer and Barbie and it's just it's wonderful news that you know people are flocking back to the cinema like that and they're good movies to flock back to I mean last week we gave Barbie three out of five you know it wasn't a glowing review but it certainly wasn't a bad review I was just a bit you know wasn't sure it was living up to the hype but it's still a decent movie uh, and still worth seeing in the cinema and uh, Oppenheimer even more so is a fantastic film and we gave that four stars (sighs) nearing five to be honest with you last week that's how taken I was with Oppenheimer but they are both great movies lots of people were in touch saying they'd been to see it just bring you on a regular uh, correspondent with the show Mark Rehan went to see Barbie and he went on Saturday morning in a cinema in Tralee and was just pointing out that, you know, the pleasure of an early morning cinema visit. It's not something we always think about. You know, Saturday night at the movies or whatever. This show is on a Saturday night. That's traditionally when we go see the movies. We go from the dark streets into the darkened room or whatever. But the morning time, if you ever catch a movie in the morning, I think it's a great way to start the day, particularly if it's pissing rain like it has been most of the week this year. But Mark, I thought, had a good line. He said he found Barbie bizarre and magnificent at the same time. It's certainly bizarre there is a lot to enjoy in it and uh, it's worth a a trip to the cinema no doubt about it as is Oppenheimer and it seems that most people got in touch chose one it's hard to get to the cinema two days in a row unless you're you know very untethered by life it's hard to you know especially Oppenheimer which is three hours it can be hard to make two movies in one weekend and and not like you know when we were in college or uh, I remember you know to see three movies one day bliss such happy times but anyway so look the cinema appears to be alive and well so God bless Oppenheimer and God bless Barbie do let me know if you might have gone to either uh, during the week or you're maybe even going tonight or over the weekend you can tweet me John underscore Fardy or the email address is screentime at newstalk.com now on TV this week I was watching this
0: maybe he likes you Yeah, he likes the first layer, maybe. I don't know, you know, but what about the second layer and the third layer? And then every step along the way, you know, I have to worry about, you know, is he gonna like the next layer? You know, and I get all afraid, like, you know, how much do I want to show him? You know, is he gonna be repulsed or is he gonna be alarmed? And at the core of the onion, Belinda, is just a straight up alcoholic. Lunatic. That. That's not true. No, it is. It is. And I just want to show my hand. I don't want to play poker anymore. I just want to skip all the layers and just go straight to the crazy and just like, you know, let the chips fall where they may. And, you know, just show them just. Show them the core of the onion.
1: Now, that is a clip from The White Lotus. I was featuring this on our series Boxed on Pat Kenny during the week. Now, The White Lotus launched in 2021, and the second season was in 2022. So I guess I am late to the party. But my gosh, what a party it is. Two seasons. There you heard Jennifer Coolidge, I should say, who people still to this day know as Stifler's mom uh, from the American Pie movies. And there she is bemoaning the state of her life and her possible love affair that she's having with a man. The White Lotus, in case you don't know, takes place the first season in a very fancy hotel called The White Lotus. And in the second season, It's another White Lotus, but the action moves to Sicily and there's only one character from each season, the Jennifer Coolidge character, who's in both seasons. And the White Lotus is a very swanky luxury hotel and all these white middle to upper class people come and in a way play out their own psychodramas in their lives against the backdrop of this lovely hotel, firstly in Hawaii and then in Sicily. And there's a kind of an upstairs-downstairs feel to it, in that the staff are not half as wealthy and are kind of bemused by the goings-on of these very rich people who are coming to visit. They have their own problems, some of the staff as well. In season one, in season one, we have this married couple who come with their two children to stay in the White Lotus. They're having certain problems. There's also a new couple who've just been married who are really not sure they should be together certainly the wife is that way and what i found in the white lotus over the last few weeks watching it is some of the best tv i have seen in a long time to be honest with you i i thought this was going to be almost some kind of modern version of fantasy island or something like that or the love boat but it's so much more than that the characters slowly reveal what's going on in their lives and the writing is so well scripted and it goes in fascinating places. It really does. And then season two was a revelation because I just didn't think it was going to get any better. And season two is possibly better. The action moves to Sicily, Michael Imperioli of The Sopranos, Christopher and The Sopranos, plays a guy who's visiting with visiting the White Lotus with a son and his father. His own marriage is breaking up and he befriends two prostitutes. There's also two couples who come who are having a really weird dynamic with each other and then Jennifer Coolidge who's in both seasons who plays this very wealthy very troubled billionaire or millionaire anyway who's travelling with her assistant and she's married in the second season. It's a kaleidoscope of human emotions and it's absolutely brilliant and the drama that unfolds is incredible and season 2 in particular has some of the most clever writing and some awkward scene setting and dialogue between characters that I've witnessed in a long time now as I say I'm a late convert or a late arrival to the White Lotus people have been raving about it but I finally caught up with it and by golly it is great television. So, do check out The White Lotus. It's on Sky or Now TV. So, check it out, my friends. Now you're listening to Screen Time, News Talks, TV and Movie Show. Now, Thinking Film, Philosophy at the Movies, is a new book of essays all about cinema and philosophy and asks questions about how cinema can aid us in our lives and add to our combined critical thinking and asks if movies can in fact be a form of philosophy. The book considers everything from cinema as therapy to the fairy storytelling in Peter Jackson's Lord of the... Rings, and considers movies as diverse as Curacao's Stray Dog to the generally derided Leap Year. The third part of the book has contributions from film lovers from all walks of life including poets and even lowly radio hosts but more of that later and sees them write about their films that inspire their own thinking. The book has been put together by Murray Littlejohn and by Richard Carney. Richard Carney is an Irish philosopher and writer who holds the Charles Sealing Chair of Philosophy at Boston College and has written too many books to mention on philosophy and the arts and has also written novels and poetry. Indeed, his latest novel Salvage has just been published to much critical acclaim, and I'm delighted to say that Richard joins me now. Hello, Richard. How are you?
2: Hello, John. Delighted to be here with you.
1: Thank you very much. Now, listen, it's a grandiose question, but is it your thinking in putting together a book like this that maybe traditional philosophers haven't given film it's necessary place in terms of how it can contribute not just to philosophy but to our general kind of emotional and intellectual understanding of our lives
2: uh, absolutely um it's interesting that it wasn't until the 1970s and eighties that philosophers actually started talking about movies mm. and uh, that was a big gap in the history of philosophy from Plato, who two and a half thousand years ago first wrote about movies in the republic his famous dialogue the republic where he has the prisoners in the cave watching images being projected from a bonfire uh, as figures go back and forth with these shapes that are that are cast onto the walls of of the cave. So it's, uh, it's, uh, it's a long time to wait from Plato <laughs> to uh, contemporary philosophy to actually come back to that question of, you know, what is reality? What is the representation we see on the silver screen? And uh, how do we negotiate our lives through dreams, and in particular, through these technologically uh, structured dreams that are so important for us?
1: Yeah. And, you know, I, don't, I won't want to wade too deep into philosophical waters and bore with people. But it seems to me from reading through the book, a person who really took philosophy or sorry, really took cinema seriously in terms of philosophy and human understanding was a gentleman called Stanley Cavell. Is that right?
2: That is right. Yes. Stanley Cavell was a remarkable figure. He's a professor of philosophy at Harvard a very kind of um, idiosyncratic uh, figure, did things his own way. But when he was um, studying for his dissertation uh, in his you know, late 20s, he, he got very bored of academic philosophy and started going to the movies. And as he came back from the movies to finish his dissertation, he said, look, there's something wrong here. How can we separate philosophical thought Uh, On the one hand, from what's going on in the movies, Uh, because what's going on in the movies is actually portraying our lives, and philosophy is meant to be reflecting on our lives. So he then started incorporating movies into philosophy and actually started raising the question what can movies teach us about philosophy? Uh, Mm -hmm. As much as what can philosophy add to movies by, you know, interpreting them, reflecting on them, analyzing them, and so forth. So he was a real. how shall I put pioneer in the philosophy of film and the setting up of, of film studies programs, you know, throughout the world, in fact.
1: Yeah. And were there particular movies that he thought were really good at, at doing the work of philosophy?
2: In fact, there were. He, he loved the Hollywood movies of the 40s and 50s. Um, you know, his, 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 first, his first book, The World in View, it goes into um philadelphia story and 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 stella maris and all these uh, stella dalla sorry and all these wonderful you know black and white movies um, that many of us would have looked at maybe in our youth but sort of moved on from there he he sort of thought that in fact the filmmakers of the time and a lot of them were exiled german jews european jews um and intellectuals and thinkers who had to leave Europe because of Mussolini and, 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 and uh, Hitler. And they, many of them settled in in Hollywood. It was the time also of Thomas Mann and, and so on and so forth. Many of the writers were, the great writers and thinkers, uh, were, were writing screenplays in order to mm. live, in order to survive. And many of the directors, Hitchcock included, were very well versed in, for example, psychoanalysis and the new psychology that was developing at the time in Europe. So this all fed into the making of movies, even though it was very, um, how shall I put it, translated. It was very translated into a very accessible idiom so that people Mm. would go to Philadelphia, you know, to Philadelphia story and they wouldn't know that this was Freud and Heidegger. Um, But actually, it was. So it was a wonderful mix of high culture and popular culture. And that's one of the great things about movies. It brings the two together.
1: And it seems to me that, you know, not to consider movies in this kind of endeavor is nonsensical because not that they're better than books or whatever, but, you know, generally a movie is about two hours and so much can be distilled in such a short space of time. Like they're a perfect vehicle for for human thought due to the kind of confinements of how they're made.
2: Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more with you. And you know, when you've seen a good movie and you've immersed yourself in this world of symbolic representation, right, these moving images in front of you, the magic of it, the pleasure of it, the joy of it, the excitement of it, the escapism of it, all of that. Mm. And and then you come out of the cinema and you're sort of aware that you're entering into another world. Now you're actually entering back into what we call the real world. Mm. But But you come from another world, which has reflected your own world in a new way. And there's always that kind of, well, I feel that, I don't know whether you, John, and your viewers, but a sense of almost awkwardness or strangeness, rather, not awkwardness, as you come out of a cinema. Sometimes you don't want to talk, you know. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Somebody says, you know, what do you think of the movie if you're with someone? And and you're not quite sure you want to talk because there's this transition from a a magical world back to the real world. But movies actually raise the question of the relationship and demonstrate and show the relationship between the magic world of dream, of phantasm, of fantasy, of representation, and our everyday real world. So I think this is absolutely true. I tell you, recently I went to see Tar. I don't know whether you saw that movie. Yes. Um, And I I found it a tough movie. It's a long movie. I wasn't quite sure what to make of it when I was watching it. But I, I woke up the next morning very early and I woke my poor wife, Anne, and I said, to her, <laughs> what did you think of the movie? And uh, we had a discussion lasting nearly two hours about, about the different scenes and the different characters and the different meanings and whatnot of, of the movie. And that's, I think, what a really good movie does it keeps coming back to you. The images keep coming back to you. And you have this kind of hunger, not just to reflect on them yourself, but actually to kind of share them with other people and talk it through with other people. I think that's the sign of a, of a great classic.
1: Yeah. And you're preaching to the converted in terms of almost wanting to be alone when you come out. Because I find whenever I see a movie of, of any description, it takes me 24 hours to figure out what I thought of it like I really can't give you an instant response and I think it's because of what you're saying you're so particularly with a good movie transported somewhere else that you are literally with a good movie changing worlds when you come out into the bright and you're squinting in the sunlight you know so I think that's I think that's a great way of putting it tell me this let me just uh, d- dive into the book a small bit there was there was a couple of examples that I found very interesting there was a chapter I think it's a man called Steve Mahal who writes about the aforementioned Leap Year, which is, I, Amy Adams is a wonderful actress. That was in part shot on the Aran Islands, which I'm a big fan of, but it's, it's a pretty atrocious movie, I, I think. Why did you want to have an essay about that in the book?
2: <laughs> well, ask, ask Mulhall that. He's one of the great uh, <laughs> sort of philosophers of movies. And I, I think it's sort of a movie that fascinated him in terms of what it could have been but what it didn't end up as. And a movie Mm. like that that almost fails puts itself in question. You know, Truffaut used to make movies in the 60s and 70s of the French um, Nouvelle Vague director about what is it to make a movie? What is it that makes a movie work? And I think, um, you know, Heidegger said you only think about life when your life breaks down, when you have a depression, when you experience the meaninglessness. It's when it breaks down that you actually ask the question, what does it mean to be? And it's like that with a movie sometimes. It's a movie that breaks down, <laughs> that causes you to question, what the hell are they trying to do? You know, what's reality here? What's representation and fiction and so on? And I think that's really what he was getting at. But I think yeah. you, it, it, it reminds me of, of another movie discussed in, in, in the book, and that's Schindler's List. And I had a, I had a very interesting experience once with with a a woman who came, a little old lady actually, who came to talk to me after I'd given a talk in McGill University in Montreal years ago uh, about Schindler's List and how a filmmaker uh, can actually depict something like the Holocaust. And anyway, at the end of it, this little old lady, she must have been in her 80s, came down to me and she said, you know, I was one of the survivors of Schindler's List. And after the war, I made it to Israel. And then I came and lived here in Montreal. And I never spoke to anybody, my husband, my children, my psychiatrist, my doctor, my rabbi, nobody about what had happened in the concentration camps. Until, she said, I went to see the movie. And seeing myself depicted by a fictional character in the concentration camp enabled me to go back and relive what I had lived, but had totally suppressed because it was so difficult, so painful, so unbearable. And having seen myself through the detour of fiction in film, I was able to revisit my own life and that part of my history and indeed of history. And I think that's the power of movies, to take us out of ourselves so that we can actually reflect on ourselves. In a way that we can't do in ordinary life, because we've got all these defense mechanisms, and mm. you know, reflex actions. And suddenly you go into movies, the mind goes on holidays, the imagination starts to play, and then you can actually conjure up all sorts of things that remain hidden and un- uh, unattended to, neglected, as it were. In in our ordinary lives, which are full of repression.
1: Now we're gonna take a short break there. I'm talking to Richard Carney about his new book, Thinking Film: Philosophy at the movies. We'll continue with more after the break. Now you're welcome back to Screen Time. I'm John Fardy, and this is News Talks TV and Movie Show. You are listening to my conversation with Richard Carney, all about his new book, All About the Philosophy of Cinema and What Movies Can Teach Us About Life and Living. And the book is called Thinking Film. Just in terms of something else in the book, and, and it, it, it pertains to your own writing about movies, you have very interesting analysis about monsters and aliens. Mm. Uh, and I was particularly taken by. You know, there was this kind of glut of music movies during the Clinton era and TV shows, The X-Files, Men in Black and all. Just tell us why you think that kind of was. You see it as kind of like an overdetermined event or something like
2: that. Well, I think in America, um, at a certain point of time, in the 80s and 90s, there was a, a big reflection about about us and them. And American society sort of started going into crisis. Now, this is before Trump and all that. Yeah. Um, and uh, and obama you know and 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 there was a sense of how do we handle our identity with the new question of immigration the northern border the southern border and suddenly all these movies started cropping up men in black you know with tommy lee jones as 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 you will remember and many of your viewers is this detective sort of operating on the border most of these movies were shot in new mexico arizona texas and um, mm. So it was very much, you know, what is America and what's not America? And this identity crisis then led to these aliens, this reflection on aliens. But instead of it being alien immigrants, uh, it was projected onto aliens from outer space. But there's a beautiful scene you may remember. I think it's indeed the opening scene in that movie when uh, Tommy Lee Jones and the agents in black are there and they, 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 they stop. A a van coming through, a lorry coming through with um, illegal aliens in the back, uh, in the back of the van from Mexico, and they take them out from the back of the van, and suddenly the the immigrants then lift off their faces, and they are aliens in disguise. Mm -hmm. So this led, I mean, there there were Alien Resurrection, that whole Alien series was there, three or four or five, with um, Sigourney Weaver playing, you know, uh, Ridley, uh, Captain Ridley um, Ripley extraordinary movies and I think it did reflect that question of how we tend to scapegoat the other that is part of us but that we want to keep out and that's a Mm -hmm. personal thing in terms of our psyches but it's also a national psychodrama and particularly now with the immigrant problem throughout Europe, throughout America, throughout the world um, and with climate it's going to be aggravated and there's always a temptation at that point to go into fantasy to try and resolve a problem you can't solve politically and one's fears one's prejudices one's projections they can all be explored cinematically in a way that we'd be uncomfortable doing very often in in real life in real terms yeah.
1: Yeah. Fascinating. Tell me this. I mentioned there's all sorts of people writing about movies and what they've meant to them over the years in the book. And yours truly has a brief piece on my favorite movie, The Royal Tannenbaums. But one one glaring uh, omission to, to my mind in any book about cinema uh, and the philosophy of cinema in particular should include Groundhog Day with Bill Murray, because I actually think that is a surprisingly philosophical movie because it gives us, and not to preach to the converted, you know a lot more about this than I do, but we have this man who's repeating the same day over and over again and and slowly realizes that the only way he's going to get out of this is by changing his behavior. And it also shows up, what I take to be the illusion of immortality he's given endless time and it becomes misery to him so it's actually masquerading in this jolly movie about a weatherman falling in love is this dark existential kind of i don't know love letter to death or something like that i'm just wondering have you ever thought about groundhog day in that way
2: oh absolutely no it's a very philosophical movie um but I, I I would invite you back, uh, John, for the next edition to include <laughs> that to your repertoire. Um, because actually, if you look at the movies, you know, I, I, I invited my, my, my co-editor, Murray Littlejohn, you know, 12 people to write about their favourite movies. And most people actually interestingly, wrote philosophically, but in a very accessible way, as you know, uh, about popular movies. Very few mm. wrote about philosophical movies as such, you know, which yeah. is interesting. You know, there's, there's no um, Bergman there. I mean, he comes up in one of the middle essays. But when we ask people to write, philosophers to write about their favorite movies, they were very often very, very popular movies, in, including your, your, your good self. And then, as you mentioned earlier, Lord of the Rings and and so on and so forth. Um, so I find that interesting that you can find very deep thoughts in very simple move- movies. It doesn't have to be Bergman and Srinberg and, you know, Kieslowski. It can actually be the movies that we watch every day. And I mean, there is Barbie now about this weekend and Oppenheimer. And there's a lot of philosophy in both of those. And they yeah. are both you know. Yes,
1: yeah, so, they absolutely are. Have you seen Barbie, incidentally?
2: No, I haven't. I haven't. Okay. It's good
1: it's, it's, it's an entertaining trip and it's fascinating. I'm not sure it, it it lives up to the hype and I couldn't help feeling I was being flogged a doll as well, but let's not get into a, a rabbit hole. Now, listen, I could talk to you about this stuff all day, but we both have miles to go before we sleep. But I want to mention your new book, Salvage, your novel that's just out. But en route to that, you had a very interesting time on screen yourself once. You were in a student movie on a beach in Cork without any clothes or is that, am I getting that twisted?
2: A little twisted John, <laughs> but uh, there's a grain of truth there and in fact it does connect with the novel, the new novel Salvage which is set on an island here in West Cork um, uh, Bridget's Island and um, uh, anyway the story unfolds there uh, but <laughs> You're right. When I was a student, uh, I was involved in a short movie um, that was filmed on the same island. Uh, it's now uninhabited. And uh, it won a little prize at the Cork Film Festival at the time and was shown on RTE News <clears throat> shortly after the Angeles, And my then professor of philosophy in UCD at the time, Desmond Connell, who later went on to become, as you know, Cardinal of Ireland, was watching the news, and he saw this uh, nude student of his walking <laughs> along a beach on this island, happily from the back. Uh, but anyway, it was enough to, to, to put him into convulsions. And I was going for a scholarship at the time, a National University of Ireland scholarship, competing for one to go to Paris to, to, do, my, to do my graduate work. And anyway, I had to do an exam with the said um, uh, cardinal, um <laughs> a, a few weeks later, but he didn't bring up the topic, but I heard from some of the colleagues he was he was rather shocked anyway um that's where the novel also takes <laughs> place and um who knows it may or may not find its way to the silver screen There's some interest at the moment, but um it's a long way to go.
1: Wow, okay, but as I say it is getting it is getting uh, warmly applauded by the people who've read it I, I've yet to do so, and does that mean? you know, interest, but you probably know better than anyone, that could still take a long time.
2: Exactly. I mean, there's there's a, a screenplay in development, and there is a producer interested, there's a possible director who I think would be ideal. But for various reasons, it's better not to mention anything now. And I've been down this road a little bit with my my first novel, Sam's Fall, where everything was ready to go. Um we had the director, we had the actors um, barry Barry Devlin had done a screenplay, and the producer najdar who 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 was you know holding all the strings he he died of a heart attack and everything fell into the water. nothing ever transpired so uh you know the movie world better than anybody. And for every screen, you know, 100 screenplays, one gets a chance. So we'll see what happens. Yeah, yeah,
1: exactly. But in the meantime, people can buy Salvage in all good bookshops and indeed online from Amazon.com. Let me ask you finally then, Richard. and. People bore who listen to this show of me asking certain people this question, but but I think you're well placed to have a view on it. There is a huge amount of talk, uh, and particularly now because of the actor strike in Hollywood, of, you know, the death of cinema, uh, streaming services covid because we stayed in our houses for so long and we watched things on small screens and i see my own children watching things on phones and all that kind of stuff and yet this weekend barbie and oppenheimer went gangbusters and you know cinema receipts are off the charts and it's the biggest weekend in years so i'm wondering where do you stand on the whole thing that the idea that people are no longer as enticed into the darkened room, which I'm a big believer in, and that cinema won't take place the same way it did in a hundred or maybe 50 years time. Where do you stand on all of that?
2: Well, you know, um, I, like you and probably most people listening to us, I would consume watch, uh, 90% of my movies on screen. Um, but I was so thrilled to see Bantry Cinema here, not far from where I'm now speaking, um, full, you know, with queues down, <laughs> down to, down to the square with people trying to get in to see Oppenheimer this weekend, and it's just great to see. And i I teach movie courses, philosophy of, of of film, in Boston College, and I always insist that every single movie we discuss, we sit down and watch in a room together in a little cinema Um, and there is an experience of the magic of the moment in that dark room. In fact, the cover of the book thinking film is actually people sitting in a dark room with a screen being lit up. And that goes back 20,000 years when people in caves, cave dwellers, first (laughs) projected and painted images onto the walls of their caves. That magic can never fully be replaced, uh, I think, with a digital simulation. It's incredibly powerful. It's, it communicates. It's 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 easy to access and everything else. And we'll never go back on that. But I think it's absolutely essential to maintain wherever we can that particular magic moment of going into a room filled with people and watching something in a dark room. Something lights up um, and it's a bonfire that's lit in our imagination every time. So I think hopefully it'll be a both hand. Um, That's my prayer.
1: Here, here! What a wonderful place to finish. It's absolutely delightful as always to talk to you, Richard. Thinking Film is available now again in all good bookshops and of course online. uh, It's a wonderful read. Richard Carney, thank you so much.
2: Thank you. A great pleasure, John. Bye-bye.
1: Yes, that was Richard Carney talking to me about his new book A Thinking Film Philosophy at the Movies edited by Richard Carney and M.E. Littlejohn, and I just found that fascinating uh, but there you go I hope you did too Up next the equally fascinating Ger Gilroy on his favourite movie Now you're welcome back to Screen Time News Talks, TV and movie show. It's that stage of the week where we talk to someone about their favourite movie. I'm delighted to be joined by an old colleague, not that he's old, Ger Gilroy of Off The Ball. Hello, Ger. Long time
3: listener, first time uh, caller? Something like that. So
1: first time sitter in chair, yes. Listen, this movie has never been chosen and it's probably one of the greatest movies of all time and I've been doing this show four years and we've had to ban certain movies like uh, Shawshank Redemption oh, yeah. some like it hot but this has never been chosen will you tell our listeners what your favourite film is and why
3: it's Chinatown and why it's a good question it's astonishingly good
1: <laughs> okay maybe give because you know even I wasn't born when this was released me neither yeah no I know that so give a, give a flavour of what it's about
3: Well, it's actually a movie that bears watching multiple times because the plot is labyrinthine. Yes. It's set in 1937 in Los Angeles and it centres around a plot by an evil man to seize control of a large portion of land. And the way they're doing this is um, they're preventing the water from irrigating large areas that are currently occupied by Orange Farmers, and creating a drought condition, they're buying the land up cheap and then as soon as the orange farmers leave, they're going to flood the land and populate it and they'll own large portions of the biggest, most prosperous city between the wars in the world. That's the kind of, the the background to an incredible story where Jack Nicholson is a private investigator and there's a woman who is connected to the man who's the evil man and that's kind of the, the plot twist is mm-hmm. that uh, she hires him to investigate her husband who happens to be the head of water who has discovered this plot and is about to whistleblow on it, but he ends up dead. Yes. And so it's it's noir, it has uh, horrific violence, it has some of the most evil character that you're, you're going to yeah. see in John Huston. He obviously has an Irish connection. And
1: he's the father of this lady in question. Who's played again by Faye Dunaway. Faye Dunaway, of course.
3: Who's at the peak of her powers? Mm. Jack Nicholson is like has has done five easy pieces. He's exploded with Easy Rider. He's done five easy pieces. He's become a leading man. Mm. And this is his run in the middle of um like it it, I don't know when it ends. Maybe it never ends. Like he's the most purple streak. It absolutely is because uh, one flew over the cook's nest is a year after, and so he, he gets nominated basically for everything around this period of time. He's the yeah. I was looking it up. He's the most nominated male actor in in Hollywood history for Oscars. Um, I you, wow, I
1: didn't know that. Well, you're staring into my territory here, steady.
3: <laughs> there's an amazing, there's an amazing scene, and uh, like this is a. Do you do spoilers in this? Yeah,
1: uh, to to a type. Let's see what you say, and well, we it's can 19, always edit it if it's, we have. It's to.
3: From 1974, right? <laughs> so uh, there's like a the reason that we know the guy is so evil is that Faye Dunaway's character uh has a sister who she's protecting in the film who it turns out is her daughter and her sister. That's
1: a pretty big spoiler.
3: It, it's a I understand that. <laughs> Funnily enough, while I was reading about this today just yeah. to re- remind myself of it, in 1974, Jack Nicholson found out that his sister was his mother.
1: That's right, yeah.
3: At the same around about the same time this is all I've happening. Um, and look, the other thing that we should mention about this, which is very problematic, is that Roman Polanski is the director.
1: We'll get to that in one second because okay. I was I was going to ask you about that. But yeah, it is a dark movie with that dark secret at its heart, and it's revealed. And I, I still have a visceral sense of when you find that bit out. It is from 1974, so people can. It's not really a spoiler. I think a lot of people. I think
3: uh, to to my point earlier, you can watch this film yeah. every year. You can. Yeah. It's definitely you should add this to your roster of films that you rewatch because on each viewing. First off, the aesthetic is incredible. Like it's made in the seventies, and so mm. I, I like. There's a I have a thing about the nineteen seventies movies where I'm just like I can watch them endlessly because uh, cinema went big in response to the advent of good quality television, yeah. and everybody was addicted to television, and they, that this was going to be the end of movies. So movies responded by going bigger and investing more money and spending more on the screen. And the I don't know, I just love the cinematography and the yeah, fancy camera work. And You're preaching
1: um, to the converted,
3: and it has Jack Nicholson. Yeah. At, at, and at he, absolute peak of his powers. He
1: is at the peak of his powers, and people, even though they do know, know know the movie, they will know this is where he spends a large part of the movie with a broken nose. It's bandage. actually,
3: it's actually, it's it's been stabbed. Yes, Roman Polanski stabs him in his in his cameo mm-hmm. in the nose and slits it. What yeah. uh, what what happens to nosy cats? They lose their nose, and he's he stabs him, and so there's like a, a giant plaster on his, on his face for most of it until eventually it comes off, and then. In a moment of um, erotically charged uh, bandaging. And, you know, it's the 70s. What do you think is going to happen here? <laughs>
1: yes. Well said. OK. Like, I completely agree with you. And we, we've, we've given away a bit of the movie, but not a huge amount. It takes place during the Water Wars. It is labyrinthine in its storytelling. It is absolutely amazing. It holds your interest. The it definitely whole
3: took way me through. a couple of viewings to fully understand the plot. Yeah. And I was reading it this morning on Wikipedia, going, ah, okay, that all makes <laughs> much more sense now.
1: So, is this something you probably watch once a year?
3: Definitely, yeah. Yeah, yeah. okay. I'm, um, I'm due my rewatch this year. It's uh, like, if, if I was ever rich, yeah. My house would be decorated like this movie, okay. like all of the parts of it, the, yeah. the, the houses that they live in, the offices that they have, particularly mm. the detective office. Yeah. I'm like, this is just
1: amazing. Yeah. And, and it's real that hard-boiled detective office kind of thing. I would have thought you would have decorated your house more like the Scarface mansion. But anyway, let's, <laughs> let's not get into that now. Okay. It is a brilliant movie, unquestionably. So we come to the elephant in the room, Roman Polanski. And we could we could ask the same of all sorts of directors and musicians and stuff like that. So he... Very problematic. Very problematic. So where do you stand on that? I don't mean the case necessarily, but the idea of someone doing something unpleasant or horrific, depending well, on the scale, and watching what they produce.
3: And It's very close to the bone with this because, again, reading about it... Um, so, uh, Angelica Houston comes home to pick up her stuff... Mm-hmm. She's living with Jack Nicholson. They've broken up mm. uh, Two, three years after the movie is made. Mm. She comes home and Roman Polanski and a teenage girl are there and he has his camera equipment. She subsequently says she saw nothing untoward. Uh, Angelica Houston's father is John Houston yes. who's in this movie. Yeah. Polanski directs this movie and obviously Polanski and Nicholson are, are best mates. And Nicholson is away when uh, when the incident happens. So look, I I don't believe Roman Polanski's version of events. Yeah. It makes it very problematic watching the movie. Yeah. Um
1: But do you still continue to watch it? I'm not saying you shouldn't, I'm just asking you. Uh
3: I do. Yeah. I do. And Be- I'm watching it I'm watching Because it.
1: you're separating the man from the art.
3: I I mean I I'm, I I don't think I am. I think I'm aware of this and okay. I'm going, This guy's this guy like uh the, the the movie has evil at its core. Yeah. And um I'm not saying you, you know he, great artists need to have some experience of it to be able to communicate it because um, I, I don't know what John Houston was like, but he he carries off the evil on screen incredibly yeah. well. So look, it is it is problematic, and I, I don't know what to do with with that stuff. Yeah, uh, you know. Yeah.
1: Um, no, that's fair enough. Fair enough. Well, we I, had to mention it.
3: I wouldn't advocate playing Michael Jackson's music on the radio anymore, but if people want to listen to Billy Jean as like a thing, then that you know you gotta you gotta make your own mind up about these yeah. things like. You go back to like David Bowie. You go back to didn't didn't W B H have some problematic oh, stuff? Oh,
1: it, it's endless. Caravaggio killed a man. So you know where do you stop? I get it. It's an interesting discussion. But listen, Chinatown is undoubtedly one of the greatest films ever made, and it's the first time it's chosen. Let me ask you this: You do have children? And I forget how old the eldest is. Eleven. So they haven't watched Chinatown no. yet. No no, <laughs> no. 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 No, okay, good. No, I, I forgot how old your children are. No, because it's always very interesting in this lot. People with kids talk about showing certain movies to their kids and what they're going to make of it. So uh, they'll uh, have to be a bit older,
3: though. Well, uh, uh, the Jack Nicholson Batman is, is my first exposure to Jack Nicholson. Oh,
1: yeah, yeah. Um, and too, I actually.
3: think I was 12 when that yeah. came out. So I've shown that to my eldest.
1: Oh, yeah. Um, he's a great joker, isn't he?
3: He's sensational. Yeah. Like yeah. uh, one of the things was he was the only actor to be uh, not, sorry him and Michael Caine were the only actors to be nominated every decade from mm. the I don't know was it the fifties from the sixties to the two thousands because obviously I think he wins one again for The Departed yes um, he's won he won three yeah. anyway but um yeah like I, I I'm I'm not really against showing stuff unless it's completely inappropriate um so Jonathan, they'll be watching
1: it soon yeah well, yeah
3: yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, thirteen probably yeah okay but yeah. it's very it's like it is definitely. So what? Why? So the water's coming out. Why is the water coming out? What? What's the? What's the orange got to do with this? And there's a bit where there's a kid who is, I, I suspect Mexican, but certainly uh, Latino who has a kind of pivotal moment where he explains something mm. and it's like totally of my head the first time I watched yeah, it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. This yeah, seems yeah. to be important. Why is it
1: important? Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's definitely worthy of rewatching. Well, thank you for that. Listen, before you go, just, I could talk to you about so many things sport related. We could discuss Everton and I could cry and you could hold me up and all sorts of things. But you've been doing sport on this station for a long, long time, right? And it seems to me in the rounds that I do here in the station and being a sports fan, but not a sports journalist or anything, that a lot of what you guys are doing now, there's a lot of politics involved, more than there ever used to be before. We're talking about Saudis. We're talking about, you know, violence in stands. Or is that just, has it always been that way? Um, Like, it just seems that that there's a huge amount outside of sport in a way that there wasn't when you and I were growing up. But what's your take on that?
3: I think that it's always been there, really, but that uh, people have got better at reporting it. One of the seminal moments of my life was watching Hillsborough unfold. And Hillsborough started as a sports story, but Mm -hmm. became relentlessly and remorselessly a political story. and A story about power and a story about uh, how uh, a people and a class of people were treated by the ruling class. And so... I think it's impossible to watch that, and it's also impossible to be a GA fan, really. And and like I'm, I my parents are from the north, and so I grew up with a deep understanding
1: mm-hmm.
3: of uh, the difficulties that there were in being a GA player, a hurler in uh, in Antrim in the fifties and sixties. Yeah. Like so, I, I think that was always there. Yeah. I think that I think that most people are now more aware of the fact that uh, we are watching. Footballs that used to be certainly produced by kids. A lot of work has has gone into us going, Oh, I'm just here to watch the game yeah. at the end of the week and have my beers and, and I'm gonna relax. It's like oh, actually this means stuff, you yeah. know?
1: So it's always been there, we're just more aware of it now because of I think, the and I, world. Yeah. And it's
3: totally a reflection of who we are. Yeah. yeah. Like it's like uh, can I watch this movie and forget what Roman Polanski did? Yeah. Or can I watch this, remember what Roman Polanski did and still enjoy the the aspects of the performance? And I think it's the same with football. Can you watch football and think about the complete debasement of the spirit of the game, but still actually think, well, oh, what Leo Messi just did with the football is something amazing. Yeah. Like, it speaks to me. So. Good
1: point. And finally, talking of debasement of sport, in one sentence or one word, will everything be in the drop zone again <laughs> yeah, next Yeah,
3: definitely. I think, I think actually Sean Dyche is the perfect manager for them for a couple of years until the ownership situation okay. gets sorted
1: out. Okay, He has done this station and indeed Irish Port some service. His favorite movie is Chinatown. Jerry Gilroy, thanks a million.
0: You're very welcome. Good afternoon. Mr. Gibbs. Giddis. Giddis. You're dealing with a disturbed woman who just lost her husband. I don't want her taken advantage of. Sit down. What for? You may think you know what you're dealing with. But believe me, you don't. Why is that funny? That's what the district attorney used to tell me in Chinatown. Yeah, was he right? Exactly what do you know about me? Sit down.
1: Mainly that you're rich and too
0: respectable to want your name in the newspapers. Of course I'm respectable. I'm old. Politicians, ugly buildings, and whores all get respectable if they last long enough.
1: A clip there from Chinatown. A movie I can't believe has never been chosen in this slot. And my thanks to Jer for going deep on it. That is it for this week. Next week on the show... We're doing one of our specials. We're looking at the best blockbusters of all time. It's an August bank holiday. It's going to be a fun show. So do tune in for that. Just remind you, this show is available as a podcast every Friday at 5pm on Newstalk.com or the News Talk app powered by Go Loud. If you want to get in touch with me at any stage during the week, John underscore Friday is my Twitter handle, or you can email me screentime at Newstalk.com. Thank you for listening. Have a safe week ahead.